So this evening, more encouragement, the necessity of being patient, patient endurance is necessary for meditation. And when I first met Lung Po Chai, one of his first instructions to me was to develop patience which the life at that time at Wat Papong, you know, if you couldn't survive if you weren't patient. And being American, you're not particularly brought up to be patient. You want to get things instantly, and it's not a virtue that's highly regarded. Where in monastic life, in Buddhist monastic life here in Thailand, it's it's an absolute necessity. Keeping the Vinaya, living within a structured lifestyle, brahmacharya, meditation, all this requires patient endurance. Also, just to to encourage you, you know, the first three days of I found in a ten day retreat, uh, you know, you're, you're coming from rather busy lives, a lot of uh, duties, responsibilities, activities, and then suddenly you come to ten day meditation retreats, more sedentary, quiet, silence, reflective. So. The bodies are not used to that, you know, our bodies, it takes about three days for to kind of relax and settle into the more silent, quiet environment of a 10-day meditation retreat. So don't feel discouraged if you feel incredibly restless, physically restless or sleepy. It's just part of our human condition. So like listening, you're listening to my voice, the words that I'm saying. This is, I always like this idea of listening as a, as a upaya or a skillful means. Because we're in the puto, in the knowing of the present. It's more like listening, witnessing. It's not evaluating, criticizing, praising, seeking, trying to control, trying to annihilate what you don't like. It's more like it is an open attention. In the two types of meditation, samatha vipassana, samatha meditation is, is going out, focusing on an object. So you're, you're sending your awareness out to kasina or to the breath, or to a mantra. So, you know, this kind of, and this leads to 
tranquility, to peace, to absorption in objects. But in order to do that, you have to dismiss everything else. You know, you've got to not have any interest in anything other than the object of concentration. So it's a concentration practice. And then vipassana, samatha, and then vipassana is this wide open attention, this kind of listening, awareness. It's not discriminating, it's not focused on an object. It's just this broad, open attention to the present moment is like this. So it's more like listening. Like you're going out into the forest and just listening to the sounds of nature, to the movement of the leaves or the birds. You're not trying to seek anything or focusing on any particular sound or tree or event, but just this alert, attentiveness, listening in this wide spectrum that embraces everything in the present. So this is uh, like the samadhi of vipassana, samasamadhi. It's not, it's not, it's not, uh, it includes everything. Everything belongs. Everything belongs like when you're listening, when you're in this state of open attention, relaxed attention, then whatever, the thoughts that come and go, the memories, the emotions, the restlessness, physical restlessness, uh, the, the sensations of the body, the sensations of breathing, pleasant, painful, neutral, whatever the quality might be, is they belong. We're not trying to control or deny or discriminate. So this is called awareness, mindfulness. The, one of my favorite teachings is from Lung Pu Dung, who was a famous uh, Thai monk who passed away many years ago, and his version of the Four Noble Truths is, it goes like this, when you send consciousness outside, looking at things, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, so when this, this sending our consciousness out through the sense organs is the cause of suffering. And then the result of sending the jitta or consciousness outside, the result is dukkha. So it's a kind of interesting take on the Four Noble Truths. And the first Noble Truth is 
as taught by the Buddha, there is suffering. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering. And in Luang Pu Dun's version, the first noble truth is the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is sending the consciousness outside, to objects of sense, to thoughts, to emotions. And the result of sending our awareness to objects of sense is dukkha or suffering. And the third noble truth is the path in Lumpudun's version of the Four Noble Truths. Jit and Jit, consciousness knowing itself, is the path. So that's the Eightfold Path. Consciousness knowing Consciousness, awareness, being aware of awareness, is the path, the Eightfold Path, the path of non-suffering. Then the fourth noble truth of Lumpudun is the result of developing the path, is Niroda, the end of suffering. So notice, like in the, in the traditional form of uh, the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha taught to his five disciples in Varanasi, 2,560-odd years ago. This is an amazing teaching developed with wisdom. It's a wisdom teaching. It's not a doctrinal teaching. So when the Buddha attained enlightenment, in Bodhgaya, you know, when he realized Dhamma, saw the path, realized non-suffering for himself, he thought, how can you teach this? You know, this is the words, there's no words that you can describe non-suffering or desirelessness or perfection, or completeness. Because Dhamma is perfect, it's, it has no flaws. <clears throat> Where words, te- the words that we use are all about flaws, about this is better than that, this is right, wrong, this is high, this is low. How can you use language to, de- to, to, Describe to, to get across the perfection of Dhamma. You know, it's impossible. You have to give up thinking and trying to, to think about it, analyze it, or find it. So, you know, and according to the scriptures, the Buddha thought there's no point in, you know, there's no way to teach Dhamma. So he, but then the, in the scriptures, the god Brahma Sahampati, 
came down from the heavenly realms and said, there are those, those with only a little dust in their eyes, you must go forth and teach. There's those that are ready for realization. You know, so, you know, you, you can still make something, you know, point to Dhamma rather than define it or make it into a doctrine a metaphysical position, a the, uh, philosophy, a philosophical approach, an idealistic. It's something that, you know, needs pointing at to be re- recognized. Because it's here and now, it's not something too high above us that, that ordinary people could never see or realize. So the Buddha agreed to go go forth and uh, on his way to Varanasi from Bodhgaya, he met an ascetic who was very impressed by the Buddha's uh, demeanor, his kind of luminosity, radiance, and asked him what he had realized. And the Buddha said, I am the realized Buddha perfectly enlightened Buddha. And of course the ascetic didn't understand the reality of that and turned away, you know. So that was a very direct teaching. It wasn't egotistical exaggeration or inflation. It wasn't the Buddha was was uh, bragging or overestimating himself. It was true, the perfectly realized, enlightened one. His awareness itself. But most people see that in terms of, you know, the ego, this this body, this person claims to be the Buddha. It sounds like overestimation to most people. So instead, when he went to Varanasi and five colleagues, the five Panchawaki colleagues who were ascetics, who practiced and developed all kinds of concentration practices and had kind of rejected Gautama the ascetic when they didn't think he was living up to their ascetic standards, they recognized there was something, you know, that special about the presence of the Buddha, and they, and they. So the Buddha's first sermon was the what we call the Four Noble Truths. So these are noble truths. Noble is not ultimate truths. Ultimate truth is Dhamma. Absolute truth is the Dhamma. It's reality itself. But noble truths, they're noble because they're pointing to ultimate truth, to Dhamma, to the reality of here and now. So, due to the Buddha's insight, he pronounced the first noble truth, there is suffering, there is dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word for suffering. 
And this, uh, you know, translated into English, there's, uh, you know, uh, many tri people trying to, different translations of dukkha into English too. But generally the word suffering is a kind of generic word for dukkha. Includes all kinds of physical, mental, emotional, whatever uh, suffering there is. Now the statement, the noble truth, this is, you know, there is suffering. It's not absolute truth. It's not ultimate truth. So what is, what is noble about suffering? Why is it a noble truth? Why would somebody take something that nobody wants? None of us want suffering. Nobody wants to suffer. We want happiness. Why would the Buddha take something that nobody wants in his first sermon and, and make a pronouncement, there is suffering? And then he said, and what to do about suffering is to understand it. To understand something, you have to accept suffering. If you're just reacting to suffering like we generally do, any kind of emotional, physical discomfort, pain, or whatever, we try to get rid of it, you know. So the reaction to the ordinary person is to react against it, try to get rid of it, blame it on conditions, on others. But the Buddha's advice was to understand. So this is to understand suffering. You're looking at it from this broad perspective of awareness. You're not trying to analyze why you're suffering or who's, who's the cause of it or is there something wrong with you for suffering. It's, it's a noble truth to understand so this is suffering in any of its forms, whether it's just anxiety, worry, fear, anger, resentment, confusion, doubt, worry, greed, lust, whatever it is. It's to understand it and to understand that we accept it. And this is where patience is necessary. Because usually, you know, when we're suffering, we, we're impatient, it makes us impatient. We don't like it, we don't want it, we want to get rid of it. So this emphasis on patience, on kanti barami and Pali, the barami of patience, kanti barami, is to understand it, allow it to be what it is, accept it. It's like this. So we use this word datta da, or it's like this, or benyang niang. So we're, we're no longer judging it or trying to do anything with it, but allow it to be what it is, whatever form it takes, physical pain, anguish, grief, despair, depression, greed, hatred, delusion, all the variations of dukkha, of suffering, 
So we understand it. Then we have the third insight that the realization from this understanding, it's called an insight. Yana dasana in Pali, suffering has been understood. So this, this is the paradigm of each noble truth. The statement, there is suffering. What to do about it is bhati-bhata. So the statement, like there is dukkha, is like bariyati dhamma. It's a statement from the scriptures. We read it, you know, when we have books on the Four Noble Truths, we, we read there is suffering. What to do about suffering is the second aspect of the First Noble Truth, is to understand it. And through that understanding we have the third insight, which is suffering has been understood. So there's three aspects to each noble truth, and this is a paradigm of, refle of reflection, of intuition. When I t talk about reflection, it's not rational thinking, it's not reason or logic that we're encouraging. You know, when you try to reason out, why do I suffer, who's at fault, and then we analyze, we try to, you know, we start thinking, making judgments, you know, so it becomes very much uh, intellectually oriented brain condition that keeps us from really understanding or feeling anything. Where intuitive intelligence, intuition, the English word intuition, is on the heart, you know, in terms of the physical body, the rational, reasonable abilities are up in the head. The intuitive sensitivity, the feeling realm is felt in the heart. Not the physical heart that's inside the body, but in this area, we, we tend, when we point to emotion, we don't point to our head. We point to grief or love or whatever, you know, when you say, talk about someone we love, we talk about a heartfelt experience. It's more intuitive, it's not rational, it's not reasonable. So in this retreat, it's a, it's an exercise it's in developing this intuitive awareness. <clears throat> it's not an intellectual exercise, but an intuitive one. Awareness, heartfelt recognition, it's like this. With your intellect, you'll judge it. You know, you think, you know, we tend to judge our emotions from the, from the brain level, from the head, you know, this is, this is, you know, this is grief, this is sorrow, this is anguish, this is love, this is hate. We give them names. We have various opinions about them, you know, and we think about them 
But the more we think about our emotions, the less we understand them. The feeling of life isn't, isn't rational. It's pleasure, pain, neutral feeling. It's like this. This is a sense realm that we're experiencing in this human form. It's all about sensitivity. It's not about ideals like how things should be. Like your intellect is about, you know, you can create perfect ideal systems through thinking, you know, using superlative thoughts about what's the best, the kindest, the ultimate. You know, so we can create ideals, but they don't feel anything, you know, the ideals have no no kind of feeling to them. They're beautiful, they're high up there, but they're rational, they have no blood, no nerve endings. So in meditation, it's not about trying to create ideals about ourselves or Dhamma or Buddhism or teachers or anything like that, but observing. Who's witnessing this puto awareness? It's intuitive. So the second noble truth, second noble truth is the cause of suffering. There is an origin, there is a cause of suffering. It's not ultimate truth. It's not permanent. Suffering is, you know, is, has conditions to, for it to arise. And then whatever arises ceases. So the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, is this, um, the statement, there is the cause, the origin of suffering, it's due to ignorance of Dhamma, the desire that we create, that we attach to, we create desire. We want to, a sensual desire, we identify with the senses. What we see, you know, we have desires. If it's attractive, beautiful, inviting, we want it. Sensual desire through seeing, through hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Ability to perceive through the senses and the attachment, the upadana, the clinging to our desires. Gamadanha is the first kind of desire, sens sensory desire, sensual desire. Then bhavadanha, danha is the Pali word for desire. Bhavadana's desire for becoming, getting something you don't have. So Bhavadana is you know, the desire that we want. We want to get samadhi. We want to get jhanas. We want to get stream entry. We want to, you know, the good desires, even noble desires to become an arahant or a Buddha. 
because we feel at the time that we're not, you know, we're not enlightened, we're, we, we, there's something wrong with us, there's a, we have faults, weaknesses, problems, we suffer, and we want to get rid of suffering. We want to be permanently happy. Desire for becoming permanently happy. Bhava dhanha. And then there's vipava dhanha, desire to get rid of suffering. Desire to get rid of greed, hatred, delusion. Desire to get rid of the kilesas, the defilements, the anger, the resentments, the jealousies, the fears. Desire to annihilate that which we don't like, don't want. So these three categories of desire. We investigate. You know, this I found this particular Second Noble Truth very helpful in the beginning of my monastic life. Because in English, desire is always kind of a pejorative term. You know, so somebody, if you say somebody has a lot of desires, it's usually uh, you know, an insult, something wrong with them, or they're obsessed with low kinds of desires. But in Dunha, it can be, we have noble desires, desires to get rid of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's why we come to retreats, desire to get something, to become something better than what we believe we are, desire to get rid of fear, anger, resentment, But desire, dhanha, is a sankhara, so it can be observed through awareness. It's not, we're not judging it, it's not about getting rid of it anymore, trying to make ourselves totally desireless, but through recognizing desire as the cause of suffering, by attaching to desire, by ignorantly clinging to desire, these three kinds of desires, that is the cause of suffering, the cause of the first noble truth. This heedless, blind attachment to desire. And puto, awareness, is aware of desire. Desire is a sankhara, Gamadana, Bhavadana, Vipuadana. The sankaras, they rise and cease. So it's not about getting rid of them or destroying desire, but understanding them. So we, you know, investigate, like Gamadana is quite obvious. Sensual desire. Mawadana, we began to see how, you know, we want to get something and so much of our, many of the monks, you know, they trying to get some, you know, samadhi, so much emphasis on attaining samadhi, getting jhanas, attaining something you don't have, based on Mawadana, the ego, 
it's egotistical. It wants you know, the sense of itself wants to get something that you you you've read about or you think is desirable that you don't have. Or you, you know, we think the other, get rid of greed, hatred, and delusion. Vipavadana, kill the kalesas. Like you often hear teachers talking about kill the, kill the kalesas. <clears throat> and so it's not about killing anything. It's not annihilation, aversion, wanting to get rid of greed, hatred, and delusion, but in recognizing attachment to the desire to get rid of things is the cause of suffering. Desire to get something you don't have is the cause of suffering. Desire for sense, pleasant sensory experiences, objects of senses, that blind clinging and attachment, upadana, Bali word for attachment is upadana, So the insight, what to do about desire, is to let go. And to let go of desire, you have, so letting go is not destroying anything. It's not annihilating desire. This is a desire realm that we're experiencing. The bodies we have are all created out of desire. The senses that we, you know, that we identify with are all about wanting, you know, seeing, wanting to get rid of what we don't like, trying to hold on to what we like. But what is it that is aware of desire, isn't desire? So this is puto, puru, knowing desire, these three kinds of desire. And seeing for yourself that your identity, the way you identify with these desires, your habit, habitual clinging, attachment, belief, identity with these three kinds of desires is the cause of suffering. The insight is to let go. So letting go is relaxing. It's not destroying. It's not about getting rid of desires. But seeing the suffering you create through attachment, this ignorant, blind attachment to desire. So the first noble truth is to understand suffering. The second noble truth is to let go of the causes of suffering. So this is intuitive awareness. This isn't about being reasonable or about, you know, trying to get something you don't have that you imagine you'd like or trying to get rid of what you have that you don't like but in understanding and in letting go. When you see the suffering, the pointless, needless dukkha, suffering you create through this blind attachment to sankharas.
So these are the first two noble truths. There is suffering, there is the origin of suffering. Now in my own practice, I, when I had the insight into the second noble truth, I had the insight to let go of desire and that was, so I, I developed a, a kind of mantra, you know, so I, it was like with puto or I'd say let go, when I'd see I'd become obsessed or caught up in my thoughts or emotions or forms of greed, hatred, delusion. I'd be aware of feeling like this and I'd use this term, let go, ploy one. So I found that helpful just to remind myself to let go. And that letting go became pretty much an obsession and then it became more like Vipavadana, trying to get rid of things. So this is where intuition is so important, intuitive intelligence. Because, you know, you begin to see, you know, that you can use Puto as a way of suppression, a way of denial, a way of annihilating, or letting go as a, as a kind of habitual reaction of suffering, trying to get rid of it. And this is where learning to trust your awareness, the wisdom of awareness. So even the techniques, meditation techniques that you use don't just become mechanical practices. Because meditation techniques can be different, varied, but they can also become mechanical without this awareness we can become habituated just to form meditation habit practices. Where awareness isn't a habit, you know, it's not, it's not something that's conditioned. It's the gate, the door to the deathless, to Dhamma, to Amatta Dhamma. So it's not a desire, it's not a Kamadana, Pawadana, Vipavadana, it's aware of Dana. Dana is like this, and it, what? Sape Sankara Nicha. It arises, ceases. You aren't always feeling desires. Desires come and go according to conditions. So you're taking your stand, putting yourself in this puto position, this awareness, this knowing. It's like this. It's not judging, not trying to control or create anything other than being aware. Whatever arises, ceases. And then the patience, the endurance through this, through letting go is like thinking is very quick. When you think, you know, words, they rise and they pass away very quickly. 
emotions kind of linger and they have a, a, an effect on the physical body. So like anger, for example, feeling angry is a very strong emotion that we experience. <clears throat> we can say, let go of anger, and then we, we hope that just by saying let go that it'll disappear, but maybe the, the kind of thinking process disappears, but there's still the, the heat, that kind of feeling that resonates, remains, lingers in the physical bodies that we have. So we're aware of that, of how emotions affect just the physical body that we're experiencing in the present. So that takes patience to allow to f the anger to be what it is till it ceases, naturally ceases, without our tr trying to get rid of it. This is what kantibharami is, or patient endurance. It's allowing conditions to be what they are, performing their duty as what arises, allowing them to cease. And when they cease, when we experience the cessation, that's Niroda, the third noble truth, the end of suffering, the cessation of dukkha, of suffering. And that is path knowledge, when we, when we have that recognition of the end of suffering. It doesn't mean that we never suffer again. It means that what we were suffering with is stopped, has ceased. We've allowed anger to be what it is, patiently allowing it, accepting it, even welcoming it, and allowing it to stay as long as necess as long as it wants to till it ceases. Then there's a recognition of Niroda, the the absence of suffering is like this. It's peaceful. Niroda is peaceful. Consciousness, this pure, immortal consciousness is peace itself, it's peacefulness. If you want to describe what it's like, the, the word peace comes to my mind as the first kind of reality of it, it's peaceful. Where thinking, emotions are not peaceful. We can, we can suffer a lot just by creating problems in our mind about the future or feelings of resentment or guilt about the past. So peace is our true nature. You know, this is, this is home. This is, where we rest, where there's no fear, no greed, no hatred, no delusion. 
And this can be realized, each one for themselves. It's what they say, budgetang to be realized individually by the one through wisdom. So then the insight into third noble truth, there is the end of suffering, the cessation of suffering. The, the second aspect of that is it should be developed or made clear or realized in daily life. So this is where we integrate into our daily life this peaceful reality of conscious awareness. In, pa, in Thai they say Tamai Jang, to make it clear. Because an insight at first, the first insight we have in the road is usually brief. You have a kind of profound understanding, it's deeper, it's not just intellectual understanding. It's called Jnana Dasana, it's an, an insight, and a gut level realization. So this kind of realization, you know, at first it, you know, then we fall back easily into our old habits of thinking and feeling, you know, because that's what we're used to. That's how we relate to ourselves and the world around us, to our families, to our society and so forth. It's all habitual behavior. But to Tamhai Chang, make this realization, develop it, cultivate it. is to trust the awareness. You know, so once you've had that insight, then you still have the vipaka kama of your lifetime, you know, so you still get angry and greedy and, and confused and so forth. But now there's a kind of insight, a kind of knowledge that you never had before. It comes not from the brain, from ideas that you read in books or scriptures, but in this kind of level of profound understanding of letting go of the causes of suffering and developing this, cultivating. This is what bhavana, the word bhavana really means, is to cultivate to develop, to make clear our natural reality of awareness in our daily lives. Every moment of our life. So the first noble truth is to understand suffering. The first three aspects, there is suffering, it should be understood. The insight, it has been understood. 
leads to the second noble truth, the causes of suffering should be relinquished, let go of, and then we have the insight they have been let go of, they have been let go of, and then the third noble truth, there is the absence, the cessation of suffering, it should be cultivated, non-suffering, awareness, peacefulness, trusting awareness. And then the third aspect, it has been realized, has been developed. And then the fourth noble truth is based on samaditi, right understanding. It's not only right, it's perfect understanding. When you had these insights into these, into the first three noble truths, there are three aspects to each truth. That's nine insights, then the Eightfold Path or the Fourth Noble Truth, Samaditi is perfect understanding of the path. So that it's not really a path, it's just a, a kind of metaphor. It's about here and now. Samaditi Samathangabho perfect intention, you know, the way we look, the way we see, leads to perfect speech, perfect livelihood, perfect action. So, you know, so the Eightfold Path develops. Samaditi, Samasangapo, Samawada, Samangamando, Samativo, Perfect effort, samavayamo sati, sama perf, sama sati, sama samadhi. Now this isn't a path that it has stages, it's kind of some simultaneous arising. With samaditi, that's perfect understanding. So there's no doubt anymore. There's nothing to, to, you know, you, you, there's a knowing, a profound knowing of peace, it's metta, it's loving-kindness, are really, you know, how we relate to the world around us is through metta, through unconditioned love, through awareness, peacefulness. So we're not just kind of zombies, you know, caught in a state of purity that is inoperative, but the Brahma-viharas, bloom in the in that enlightened state metta karuna mudita upeka you know they're not created through the thinking anymore they're the realities of love metta compassion mudita joy upeka equanimity So then this is to be developed or cultivated. 
Third noble truth is to make clear. Fourth noble truth is to cultivate this through samaditi. So this is on an intuitive plane now, rather than just a rational understanding of, you know, definitions of the Eightfold Path or the Four Noble Truths, its three aspects, twelve insights. We can all memorize that from reading the, the, the basic instructions on the Four Noble Truths, but as, as I was saying in the beginning of this evening, this, this isn't about acquiring knowledge about Buddhism or Dhamma. It's the reality of Dhamma. It's real. It's not something kind of mystical and remote and, and impossible for any of us to recognize. It's so close, so real. Remember that our self-views, our egos are complicated as personalities, as physical individuals. We're all very complicated and simplicity, the ultimate simplicity of Dhamma baffles us because we, we think. Thinking creates, com divides and complicates everything. Emotions are complicated. Society, that's why society is the way it is, why there's divine peacefulness in society, you know, seems almost impossible. Why is that? Because nobody understands peace. They don't know peace of their own natural state. They want, they have some idea of making peace agreements, peace conferences, getting together and kind of agreeing on developing peace, but it never really works very well because we're complicated individuals that don't, that think differently, feel differently, react differently. We aren't just manufactured out of a, you know, like tin soldiers off an assembly line. Each one of us is unique and, and complicated in our own special way. So to, to, for a degree on everything, you know, why, why do people have to be the way they do? Why, do, why does the President of the United States have to be like that? Because this is natural for, you know, the karma of being a complicated personality is like this, it's different than what I am. Like, why can't he be like me? It's impossible. <laughs> you, nobody can be like me. Because this, what consider me is, 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 you know, a series of complicated uh, habit patterns, assumptions, conditioned phenomena, but what is common to all of us? What is our bond as human beings? Is consciousness. It's not personal, it's not complicated. And it's what we actually are. And this is why we, when the Buddhist 
directional signs, the Four Noble Truths, are pointing at that. It's, you know, you couldn't describe it, but taking suffering, a common, ordinary experience that any of us can relate to, it's not high up, it's not mystical, not complicated. And by understanding that, we realize true happiness or peace. So this is the kind of unique quality of, of the Buddha Dhamma, Buddha's teaching, taking something so banal, so ordinary as suffering and understanding it not through and analyzing it, but through understanding suffering is impermanent, it's not self. 